Okay, I'm reloaded. You motherfuckers think you big time? Fucking with Chris and Summit. You're gonna die big time. Hickin' the pain. From Breaking Atoms comes a new original podcast series celebrating the 25th anniversary of Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt. In our third episode, we continue our deep dive into the album's track list and key themes. We also analyze the people, places and things that made the album happen, including early life performances, leftover songs and promo campaigns. This is Brooklyn's Finest. As the album began to take shape, Dame Dash, Kareem Biggs-Burke and Jay-Z started looking for distribution for Rockefeller Records. They inked to deal with Freeze Records, a dance label owned by Will Sokolov, who helped them to get distribution through Priority Records. In North America, Reasonable Doubt was released through Freeze and Priority Records and worldwide through Northwest Side Records. We continue our deep dive into the making of Reasonable Doubt with track six. The Evils is produced by DJ Premier. The idea for the song came to Jay-Z in a dreamlike burst of inspiration. Jay called Premier and rapped the lyrics to him over the phone. Primo then created a beat sampling Go Back Home by Alan Toussaint and delivered a tailor-made production for Jay to exercise his demons over. The hook is a patchwork of vocal samples from Snoop Dogg's Murder Was The Case and Prodigy's verse from I Shot Ya by LL Cool J. Charlie Braxton, who wrote the review for Reasonable Doubt in the Source magazine's August 1996 issue, explains why he thinks The Evils is one of rap's most profound religious experiences. The record The Evils is my favourite record because it is one of the most profound critiques of capitalism I've ever heard in a gangster rap record. Okay, I know that I'm destroying my community, but I'm infected with this lust for lucre. The whole drug game is being driven by money. My whole endeavor is the money. You've got companies who are destroying human lives to increase their bottom line. So what's the difference between a drug dealer who's a street vendor like Jay-Z was depicting in the record and say somebody from a big farmer who's peddling a drug they know have dangerous side effects? You know, I'm saying it, 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 it was a very subtle way of critiquing capitalism without ever using the word capitalism. It was a subtle way of critiquing how the industry works without calling it out. Ryan Proctor, a UK-based journalist, further explores the themes and the lyrics of The Evils. For me, that record is about loss of innocence, loss of friendship, paranoia going down a road that potentially you didn't necessarily want to, but circumstances presented it to you and you ended up doing things that you didn't really want to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the lyric on the lyric on there where he says, we used to fight for building blocks. We used to fight for building blocks. Now we fight for blocks with builders that make the killing. The closest of friends when we first started, but grew apart as the money grew, soon grew black hearted. It tells you everything you need to know without having to tell you more than needs to be said. It's just there. And you know exactly what he's referring to. He's talking about being a kid, arguing with his friends that he grew up with as a kid, building blocks. You're you're playing with building blocks when you're three, four, five, six years old. And now he's talking about fighting over buildings. The amazing record. US-based journalist Yo Phillips picks out a line from The Evils that resonates with him. But to say I never prayed to God, I prayed to Gotti, 
was sensational to me because it really let me know what kind of man I'm dealing with. Like, you're not God fearing, you know, or if you are, you look at there's a higher power than God to you. There's something more to pray to. And I think all of that adds context to the character. He was extremely well executing how to define this identity of this hustle. My body, it used to say, fuck my skills. I never prayed to God, I prayed to God. E, that's right, it's wicked. That's life, I live it, ain't asking for forgiveness for my sins. Like, he would even allow you to understand like, who he prayed to. Jay-Z didn't miss any details when it came to crafting this image of himself. And I think that's like the most important aspect of his writing that I think even all rappers today should be able to like watch. Watch the descriptions, watch the details, watch the imagery, watch the vividness of how he articulates not just his surroundings, but himself in these surroundings. He never misses a detail that helps you understand who he is. Pain in the Ass compares Jay's uncanny ability to deliver strong finishes in his verses to sports games. One thing about the way he made songs and he structured songs, it was like a game, like a baseball game or a basketball game. He finished off so strong, like uh, stop front. You know, the demon said it's best to die. And even if Jehovah Witness bet, he'll never testify. Boom, like a knockout blow. Like that's it, it's over. Even if Jehovah Witness bet, he'll never testify. You're like, damn, what the hell? Screaming, you know the demon said it's best to die. And even if Jehovah Witness bet, he'll never testify. One of the earliest songs for Reasonable Doubt was 22 Twos, a clever mix of numerology and wordplay. And Jay-Z would often perform this freestyle at his live shows. Maria Davis, founder and host of the fabled Mad Wednesdays live events, describes meeting Jay and seeing his star power early on. Clark Kent actually bought him because I have a picture of him and I and all of us at the table. I think we were celebrating Clark Kent's birthday at the time. And that was my introduction to Jay-Z. He was very laid back, but I loved him. And it's so crazy because back then people was like, who is this? You know, my Mad Wednesday crowd was a different kind of crowd. Who is this whack dude? And I was like, honey, you might think he whack, but he's going somewhere. I believed in him. Damon Dash believed in him. Clark Kent believed in him. They didn't bring me no, any artist that came from Rockefeller Records, uh, Sauce Money, Chris John. You know, they had a couple of artists there that performed for me. Uh, Memphis Bleak, they were all excellent. You know, Shaka, Pilgrim played a very huge part too. You know, to this day, that's my ride or die. Yo, what's up everybody? This is Maria Davis, Mad Wednesdays. We here tonight to have a good time. Wait a minute, I see my man over there, Jay-Z. Jay-Z, Dame Dash, let me hear that little tape of yours. And it's fat. Why don't you come up here and kick a little freestyle? Put that champagne down and kick a little freestyle yeah, for me tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? Whenever he came anywhere, you have to do that 22 2 song, JV. That's what he, that was the first song that they had, he had to perform for me. And it's so crazy that they wound up putting me on it because that was my favorite song. Too much West Coast dick licking and too many niggas on a mission. Doing your best, JC rendition. Ski Beats, who produced the track, hated the beat. He tried his utmost to get Jay-Z to choose another. He was unsuccessful. He made that verse famous at Mad Wednesdays. So that's why he got Maria Davis to do the skit as if we was at the club. Because that's how she would talk at the club. She was famous for that. I hated that beat. I did not want him to have that beat. I, I was trying to give him another beat. But he took 22 twos. He killed it. But I just never liked that beat. 
That was just not my style. But with Jay, he just never messed up. He just went in there, laid it down, come out the booth. Let me hear it. And, you, you know, you listen to this crazy verse. Like, how the fuck are you going to say that one time and say it like that? And kid was crazy. Kid's amazing. This was Maria's first time in the studio. But who asked her to be on the album? It was Dame Dash. And it was Jay-Z, too. Both of them asked me. Now that I remember, both of them asked me. I know it wasn't Clark because they had to add an extra piece on the record. Because, you know, that was the first time I recorded and I forgot to say Clark Kent's name. So they kind of spliced it a little bit so that you could hear it say the Clark Kent's name on it. And they put me on there because I was famous for going around the club, making sure people didn't smoke weed. And if I caught you smoking weed, you got kicked out. And then if I caught you smoking weed, I would shut the whole party down and you would have to hear a 45 minute Black History Month speech from me. That's why you hear me talking now. That's why our people don't have anything because we don't know how to go in places and act properly. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who told me shut the F up? Who told me to shut the F up? Get him out of here. I'm not gonna continue this show until you throw him out. Get him out. Just before the end of the song, Maria can be heard telling Jay-Z, I know you've been having a lot of problems with the law, but I know you're innocent and I'm behind you 100%. Maria shed some light on why those words were so significant at the time. Yeah, we know you've been on trial and we're here for you, yeah. Some kind of case he had, but it was it was very public. The case was public. So that's why I said, you know, we behind you 100%. You know, Rudy King, Maria Davis, Mad Wednesdays. And then what the person told me, shut the F up. Pain in the ass. The voice on the intro of the album explains how and why 22-2s evolved from a freestyle into a complete song. 22-2s is, the first verse, is the, what he does all the time on stage. Too much West Coast, did all that, the two, 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 two. If you hear the second verse, it was done afterwards. That's why he doesn't do the twos that much, because he had to go back and now drop, make it into a song. What was a freestyle turned into a song. The album skits were recorded in part in the B-Room at D&D Studios. However, the theme of the album changed. Originally, Reasonable Doubt was going to be called Heir to the Throne. Pain in the Arse explains the name change. Yeah, yeah, that was the working title, yeah. That was the working title, Heir to the Throne. But when I got there, it was Reasonable Doubt, Reasonable Doubt, Reasonable Doubt. They, they just went to Vegas. That famous picture you see of Vegas, Jones, Jay, and everybody, they just went. It was a Mike Tyson fight. I believe they seen somebody there, something to do with OJ or something like that. The OJ Simpson thing was so big at that time. Uh, he was acquitted in October of 95. And the glove thing, all that, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt was a big word at that time, just like COVID now. So at that time, that was such a huge deal. They're like, yo, let's call it reasonable doubt. And Jay's on trial, like, like he reasonable doubt to be the illest rapper in the game and the hustler on the street. Because we all love Jay. We couldn't understand what the world didn't see. Like, I mean, take off your glasses. I mean, what, what can you not see? Yeah. Yeah. Rockefeller. We invite you to something epic, you know? The eighth song on Reasonable Doubt is Can I Live, produced by Irv Gotti, known then as DJ Irv. The track samples The Look of Love by Isaac Hayes and finds Jay waxing lyrical about striving and thriving and dropping cautionary life jewels throughout the verses. Journalists Yo Phillips and Rob Markman pour over the song's content and explore the depth of that one simple question. Can I live? I'd rather live enormous and die dormant has been like a mantra of mine from the moment I heard it. 
it stuck with me. And I never heard anyone articulate that desire in that way ever. Like no matter how much literature I read, no matter how many rap albums I hear, I, if I ever get a chance to ask Jay why, what was that feeling like that made him say that? And I think it's just being able to articulate in such a rare way a feeling that, that just feels like it hasn't been documented before. That's what Jay kind of gives me on this album is that he documents certain sensations that are so visceral that you have to react to it. I'm writing, I'm trying to find my voice and I'm, and I'm making choices of how to say things. So when Jay would say things, I, I would just catch it. But when he said, um, like a Buddhist, recruited lieutenants with ludicrous dreams are getting cream. Let's do this. It gets tedious. So I keep one eye open like CBS. You see me stress. From an MC standpoint, that was one of those lyrics that was staring us in the face. Like anybody could have wrote that based off of experience. Why? Let's think about it. the popular phrase. I, I sleep with one eye open, you know, channel two CBS, their logo was just an eye. Damn, that shit was staring us in the face the whole time, but he's the one who pulled it out. And that line stuck out to me in a similar way for when I was a kid. And, and maybe this is where Jay got it from. Cause we know that he's also in part a protege of Kane. Like when Kane says, put a quarter in your ass. Cause you played yourself. Like it's like it's like fam, what? And, and this is really before punchlines took off and rap like that. When Kane said, "Put a quarter in your ass because you played yourself," like you go crazy because it's like, yo, like did he just say that? That's fire. Or we maybe we wasn't saying fire, then that's fat. Following Can I Live is Ain't No at track nine, which we covered in episode two of this series. Track 10 on the album is a DJ Premier produced friend or foe. In this song, Jay-Z assumes the role of the drug game Wilson Fisk and condescendingly scolds a young zealous upstar with aspirations of taking over his market share. Ryan Proctor shares his thoughts about the themes in friend or foe and why he thinks Reasonable Doubt's shortest track is one of the more humorous moments on the album. I mean, he said on Dead Presidents too, you know, factions from the other side would love to kill me. You're listening to that thing like, wow, you know, that's why you don't want to get into that sort of game. On the flip side of that, you listen to Friend or Foe, and then at the end of it, with the don't you ever, 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 ever come around here no more, and then laughs. So there's, he's still putting humour in it at what he's describing, even though 30 seconds before you were like, wow, that's cold. Like, you know, what he's talking about on there. Yeah. Come experience life as we know it. Reasonable Doubt's 11th track is Coming of Age, produced by Clark Kent and features Memphis Bleak making his recording debut. Initially, Jay wanted Wu-Tang affiliate Shaheem to play the young homie in rap form, but the dots couldn't connect. Memphis Bleak revealed that Jay-Z wrote his verse for him. Pain in the Arse and UK journalist Ryan Proctor talk about why the song's narrative is so powerful and reflect on the impressive performance of Memphis Bleak. I love how that turned into sort of like a mini series where you have the first one where he's talking about, yo, come roll with me, here's a thousand dollars net to the second one, which I think is incredible too, where it's like, yo, now he's getting big for his bridges, that kid. Memphis Bleak, he delivered those verses perfectly. And considering they, they were verses that were, that were written for him, the story that they were trying to tell with that record, brilliantly done. And Memphis Bleak's performance on that record 
goes a long way to delivering the impact that that record needed to have because he sounded like someone who was happy and eager to be getting on. And there's moments on there where he almost sounds like he's getting ahead of the beat. He wants to prove so much. And to me, that just makes the record even more special because it's that, that rawness and that relationship between the two of them is, uh, it just really comes through on that record and it's brilliantly written. Turn riches and bitches. Listen to me. You let them other niggas get the name, skip the fame. Tenth hour, a hundred G, keep your shit the same. On the low. Yeah, the only way to blow. Maria fondly recalls her love for Memphis Bleak and another featured artist, Source Money. But you know what? Memphis Bleak was quiet. He was, but he was very talented. He was one of my favorite. That was one of my favorite. Him and Source Money. Sauce Money was a big part of my life, too, because Sauce Money was with Lynn Scott. And Lynn Scott was in one of my record company sisters. But me and Sauce Money had a very special relationship. Pain in the Yard shares why the features on Reasonable Doubt work so well and talks about the creative freedom that Dame, Biggs and Jay had since they were independent label owners. I think that the features on Reasonable Doubt fit perfectly. Mary J, Big, Sauce Money, Jazz. Incredible. Everything is perfectly placed. Everything. It was a blessing that he had his own label and he could have came out whenever he wanted to, because originally it was supposed to come out in April and it got pushed back. Like they, they did what they needed to do on their terms because there was no label influence and there was no label telling them what to do. Had that happened, maybe you had the original Can't Knock the Hustle. You would have had the original because the label's like, yeah, we have to put this out. We've already done a campaign promoting it. So we were able to take our time and put it out when we felt the time was right. Hence why you have a dead president's one and a dead president's two, because he wasn't comfortable with dead president's one at that time. He's like, all right, cool. You know what? That was cool for the first half. Now let me, let me switch it up. Let me freestyle over it again. And the freestyle that you see ends up on the album as, as dead president's two. And like I said, it's really the night and day of Jay-Z at that time between the success and trying to find the success at that moment. Cashmere Thoughts is the 12th song on the album and is produced by DJ Clark Kent. He revealed that Cashmere Thoughts was originally intended to be a hard pack record. Sadly, Source Money and Jazzo didn't complete their verses. Cashmere Thoughts, crazy enough, would have been a hard pack record. Jazz and Sauce should have been on that record. It's crazy because it was for a totally another project. It was for a project where they took on different personas and the personas were pimps. Cashmere thoughts was Cashmere Jones. Like think about Bleak's name. It's Memphis Bleak. It sounds like a pimp name. And then one of them was Gator and, and Sauce. I can't remember what his, his nickname was, but I think it might have been Gator something and Jazzos was something else, but everybody had a pimp name. That's the reason me and Jay are talking pimp talk at the beginning of the song. Like, that's me talking back and forth with Jay. And, you know, I'm like, well, if I had your hands, I cut mine off, and, you know. Stick your hands in your stick your hands in your panty, grab that knot, put your arm in the window, drop it like a hat. That's what a pimp would say to a hoe when they on the street. And he's telling them, like, yo, give me that fucking money that you got for me. That's me saying that. We were talking like pimps. If you listen to it, pimp thoughts, you think thoughts type similar. And 
It was supposed to be three of them. That's why Jay has a second verse because they didn't do their, their third verses. He did one verse and it was just one verse for a while. And then when it was getting close to the end, he was like, I got another verse. The re- the song, it's funny because the song is recorded in two parts. Like the first part was done in my house and the second part was done in um unique studio, I think. For track 13, we are treated to the album's third and final DJ Premier produced banger. Bring It On finds Jay, Source Money and Jazz together coining phrases for dollars, fondling triggers straight up and making moves that remove pebbles out of shoes. It shows the potential of what the hard pack could have become and remains one of hip-hop's biggest what-if moments. Jazz remembers getting the call to come to the studio to record his verse for the song. They called me to D&D. Jay and Sauce had already completed their verses. So they let me listen up to that point. And um, they was like, one, two, three, go. So, <laughs> so I wrote it on the spot. You know, they were harassing me. Like, come on, man, hurry up. Come on, man. Come on. You know, jokingly, of course, I wrote the verse and laid it. I guess it was about an hour, maybe. Money is power, I'm energetic with facial credit, pure platinum fetish, but cheddar spread lettuce, you both get deadish. I make moves that remove pebbles out of shoes, you suck pistol, like pipe with the crystal, jaw stock that couldn't assist you. DJ Snips, founder of Barbershop Records and Living Proof, explains why the sample used for the Bring It On beat remains sought after by so many producers. From a producer point of view, Bring It On holds a special place with me because I'm somebody that, that, you know, I obsess over samples and breaks and finding these original records that producers flip. It's the only one that's eluded me. It's the only one no one knows what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Stress. The album reaches a somber and reflective close with track 14. Regrets is produced by Peter Panic of the Superman DJ crew. The song samples Hubert Laws and Earl Clue's collaboration, It's So Easy Loving You. It provides a backdrop for Jay-Z to examine how the consequences of his life decisions may tip the karmic scale against his favour. Charlie Braxton, also known as Scarface's favourite journalist, talks about how Regrets is a song equally about catharsis and carrying the weight of remorse. Regrets, the thing about Regrets was that was a record of catharsis which is something you rarely, rarely hear in rap records, particularly gangster rap records. For, particularly for me, the way he addresses his remorse, he understands it. And it's killing him inside, but he can't stop doing it. Many rap fans have asked this question. Why did Jay have umlauts over his name in the early Rockefeller years? To uncover the mystery, we spoke to historian Dar Adams. If you remember, you look at early Jay-Z singles, early Jay-Z albums, and you see um, umlauts, and a lot of people didn't know why that was. They thought it was just like maybe an error or maybe just like something that they tried to do to be cute with the the typesetting, the typeface, what have you. No, there was a Jay-Z. Jay-Z was a producer on the West Coast, and he did production for um, Saphir. He did production for Hobo Junction. He did production for Who Writers. He did production for a lot of people in that sphere, right? And his name was J-Z. It used to be just Jay-Z. Then it was J-Z. In 1991, Digital Underground made an album called Sons of the Peak. And I put up a joint called Flowing on the D-Line. 
And Shock G talks about his boy who did what whatever. And then at the end, he says, yo, Jay-Z, cut it up something stupid. Tupac in the house. Got a big grin on his face. Jay-Z, cut that shit up stupid. And then you hear scratching. He was DJ Jay-Z at the time. So Jay-Z has been around in the industry between 1990 and 1996 before Jay-Z put out a solo album. Avid readers of album liner notes will discover that Jay's publishing company was Lil Lulu Music. What was the significance of that name? Jazzo explains. So you you didn't you didn't get that answer yet? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, that's um well his mother's nickname was Lulu. So he aptly named his uh, first publishing company, Lil Lulu. Mastering is a crucial part of the album creation process. It's the term most commonly used to refer to the process of taking an audio mix and preparing it for distribution. There are several considerations in this process, including unifying the sound of a record and maintaining consistency across an album. Reasonable Doubt was mastered at the Master Cutting Room by Duncan Stanbury in New York. DJ Clark Kent also revealed that Brooklyn's Finest was the last record to be mixed and needed to be completed the night before turning the project in. There was one song that didn't make the album. Tell Me How It Feels featuring Black Widow, an acquaintance of T-Strong, also known as Tone Hooker, was supposed to make the final cut, but they couldn't find the dat. All I know is it was mastered the morning after I finished mixing Brooklyn's Finest. So I finished mixing the record and I had to finish it to make it on the album. If I don't finish it, it doesn't get on the album. If I don't finish it that night, the next morning at Master, it's not on the album. There's a song that's not on the album because we couldn't find the dad. Tell me how it feels. And it had a, had a girl rapper on it named Black Widow. She was one of T. Strong's people. She was like one of his best friends. In the first episode of this series, Ski recalls working with Jay before Reasonable Doubt. In our conversations with the legendary producer, he revealed he produced a full-length album with Jay that never came out. He also made five songs with Big L. However, with the introduction of Pro Tools, Ski threw the ADATs away, thinking he would no longer need them. Man, there's a whole other album uh, before Reasonable Doubt that I had, that I produced, uh, but it was on ADAT. When Pro Tools came out, I took the ADATs, I said, I don't need these no more, and threw them away. I got a whole album like that with uh, Jay, and I got a whole album like that. Well, no, five songs with Big L. Who was working on the album. And I threw all that shit away. DJ Clark Kent reflects on the songs that made the album and the ones that didn't, including a song that got him in trouble at Mad Wednesdays. I look at every song that him and I did, like before the songs on the album, with songs that made the album. Like everything he did with Ski, like most of that was done in my house. Like all of those songs were the song. I'm talking about the songs that were unreleased before the album. Those were the songs that made Reasonable Doubt. Like we had a song called Freestyling for the Bitches. It was amazing. Shitty was saying was crazy. So I got in trouble for Freestyling for the Bitches. It was my birthday and we celebrated it at Man Wednesdays. I think I might have drank 17 bottles of Cristal. And Jay is performing and jazz and we're all up on stage and I kept saying, yo, freestyle for the bitches. Like I'm telling him to do the song. <laughs> the crowd is like, you calling us bitches? <laughs> yo, so many women were beefing about what I was saying. Like he's telling, he's calling us bitches, talking about some freestyle. Like Jay is like, 
he's he's blasting. Dame was like, yo, he's so drunk. Like, yo, Clock, I've never seen you like this. There's a tape of that, of people, of him going, yo, I've never seen Clock like this. I'm destroyed. And I'm, yo, freestyle for the bitches. I'm like, I wanted him to do the song because it was so crazy. And we never got to it. But we were all drunk. And then um, the next week when Maria was like, yo, so many of these girls that love you really hate you right now because you kept telling Jay to freestyle for the bitches. I was like, that's the name of a song. She was like, they don't know that. So I, there was a guy who used to sell roses in the club. I bought all the roses. He was like, give them out to all the girls. And I was like, did everyone get a rose? I want to apologize about my actions last week. Freestyle, when I was saying freestyle for the bitches, it was a name of a song. I wasn't telling him to freestyle for bitches. We had a song called That's My Bitch. We had so many like super ill songs. On the next episode of Brooklyn's Finest. Christian remember, they were driving a 190E Mercedes. I remember the car clearly because it was like entry-level Mercedes. Had a white, had a Rockefeller logo on the front. And we were meeting them. We'd gone to meet them at a restaurant and they turned up in the car for some reason. I think they needed a car with them. And when they turned up, Jay-Z himself was leaning out the car, handing flyers and CDs. Clean Finest, The Making of Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z. It's a Breaking Atoms production. This series is produced by Summit Sharma and Christopher Mitchell and is mixed and mastered by Dave Walker. To stay in the loop and receive episodes as soon as they drop, follow and subscribe to Breaking Atoms or search for Breaking Atoms wherever you listen to podcasts. 